You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm pleased to share with you my interview with none other than Jim Carlin, my twin brother. Now you might be wondering yourself, why interview your twin? Don't you know everything about him? Well, I'll tell you why I wanted to talk to Jim and why I think you should listen. It's the same reason why I do all of these interviews. It's because I think Jim has got a great story. Ever since he was in law school, Jim wanted to join the JAG Corps and become a lawyer for the Army. But because he was born with asthma, he could never pass the medical exam. But he didn't give up on his dream. He kept at it until finally... He was able to get in right before the cutoff age of 40. I can't imagine what going through basic training at the age of 40 was like. Uh, but anyway, I digress. But in addition to kind of unquirking Jim's story about joining the Army and, and why he wanted to join the Army at such an advanced age, and I realize 40 isn't that old, but, I mean, come on. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you're no spring chicken at 40. Um there's another reason I wanted to talk to Jim. We, we were pretty inseparable growing up. I mean, we, we were twins. Uh, we were kind of like built-in best friends. Um, in fact, uh, <laughs> I crafted a character in the Farragram book series after Jim. And for those of you who have read either Uncorking a Murder or The Last Homily, uh, Jimmy Doubts, the character, is uh, based on my twin brother, Jim Carlin. But over the past decade, we haven't seen much of each other. And I thought it'd be a good idea to connect on a Wednesday afternoon on my back porch, roll some tape, and see where the conversation took us. So here is my talk with Captain James P. Carlin of the U.S. Army Reserve. Before I get to it, though, I want to let you know that this interview is brought to you by my new novel, The Last Homily. A Catholic priest is murdered on the altar at a church in Chatham, Massachusetts, and it's up to Farragram the host of the Uncorking a Murder podcast, to find out who did it and why before the killer strikes again. You can pick up The Last Homily at Amazon.com or wherever books are sold online. And without further ado, here is my interview with Jim Carlin. Today's guest, the long-awaited interview with Jim Carlin. <laughs> Jim Carlin, the lawyer, Jim Carlin, the captain in our uh, army, and uh, well, Jim, uh, how you doing there? Well, this, is, uh, this has been a long time coming, hasn't it? Oh, sorry, I'm not used to the equipment. Uh, long, long time coming, thank you for inviting me to your, your home recording studio, I appreciate that. Well, you're, you're a very hard person to pin down, James. Uh, well, I, I wear many hats, as you pointed out in your introduction, and uh, there are quite a lot of pressures, uh, constraints placed on my time, as there are with you, of course, and, uh, you know, but I'm glad to have this opportunity. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're, uh, you're as serious as ever, James. Um, now, one thing I, I definitely do want to talk about 
uh, is certainly your decision around the age of 40 to join the Army. Uh, we are going to get in, into that in a bit. But I do want to admit something, that the, the title of my forthcoming fictitious autobiography is going to be called, Where's Jimmy? Because uh, that's the question I always get asked. Whenever I run into people who you and I both know, it's always, hey, Mike, I hear you're doing well. How's your brother doing? Have you heard from your brother? I'd like to see him. Yeah. Matter of fact, even uh, August uh, 14th, 1999, the day of my wedding, I'm having uh, the mother-son dance with, uh, with mom. We're listening to Perry Como's Catch a Falling Star. And the only thing she said to me during that dance was, where's Jimmy? Yeah. So that's how I'm getting the title of uh, my autobiography, which I'll probably never write. <laughs> Too busy writing fiction well, these I, days. Well, I, I have to say, uh, you know, your, your, your books are, are contraband in my household, as, as you may know. But uh, I, I have appreciated uh, perusing them. I have bought them secretly for, uh, for my older son. And I'm particularly intrigued by uh, your, I guess, most recently published book, which um, I think it sounds to me like a bit of a self-help book almost. But, um, <laughs> but I, I, I like it, and uh, I like the concept behind it, and we can talk about that as well, particularly in the, in the context of the, uh, the Army discussion that you'd like to have. But, yes, I, I appreciate the fact that uh, people are asking about my my whereabouts on a regular basis. Um, you know, you and I were somewhat attached at the hip growing up, so it's not surprising that people that you're running into are, are asking where I am. Uh, I'm sure the same thing would happen in reverse if I came out of my hole and, and actually interacted <laughs> interacted with people the way that you did. Well, perhaps. Now, the one thing I want to point out here is just a, a little bit of irony, and that irony is that when we were growing up, it was always your dream to be a radio host. You were going to go to school to become, you know, the next Howard Stern. As a matter of fact, I remember writing a sketch for you during our uh, senior year talent show, uh, nicknamed, uh, actually aptly titled, The Jim Stern Show, a, a sketch that I will point out, uh, went over very well with the audience, not so much with the administration of the yeah. school at the time. Yeah, it, uh, it, it, it was a bit risque for Catholic high school in 1991. Uh, would probably actually be even more risque today, given the current environment and the sensitivities out there. But um, yes, uh, I, I was very much interested in radio as a medium, and um, I, I think it was at the age of nine for a birthday present, I received a, a radio as a present, and it had the uh, function on it where you could record your voice on the radio, and I would follow people around the house and interview them and uh, endlessly ask you questions and ask you to participate in mock radio programs. And yes, uh, I, I really did want to do that, and uh, I still uh, sometimes find myself drifting off into the ether sometimes, uh, particularly in a high-stress, high-pressured environment that I find myself in regularly and think, you oh, know, the hell, maybe I should just throw it all away and go get a, a radio program in Cleveland working for $10 an hour someplace. But well, you know, it's, it's, what I did want to ask was, you know, you went, uh, I remember in high school, we would always, whenever there was a test to study for, you would take out the boom box, we would, we would play Jeopardy, um, mm -hmm. 
and you would actually record it as if we were recording it for a radio program, <laughs> uh, which I thought was funny, and you, you were convinced people were listening. Of course, they weren't because right. there was no transmitter function <laughs> on, the, on the box, as, as, as we used to call it. <laughs> then you go to college specifically to study communications. I did. And that, was, uh, that really drove your decision to go to Fairfield University. Fantastic uh, communications program. And uh, then you leave school and, and become uh, a lawyer for what reason, I don't know. Uh, tell me, what, what influenced your decision to, to move away from the, uh, the spoken media, you know, radio, and, and go to law school? Well, uh, I, I guess part of me felt like um, if I still wanted to pursue a career in the media, that having a law degree would not be such a bad idea. So part of me felt like I could keep one toe in the water, so to speak, and get a, a law degree and perhaps use that education and those skills and still pursue a career in media. So that was part of it. The other part of it was just a practical concern about being able to find a career that I could support myself with. And, you know, in retrospect, um, if I had my druthers, I probably would have gone back and not followed the path of, uh, you know, going to law school. I probably would have gone to law school, but you know, getting a summer internship at a law firm and then working as a first-year associate at a, at a large law firm and then continuing to grind it out as an associate for all those years. I mean, it, it's easy to sit here on the other side of it now, um, you know, somewhat more senior in my profession. Um, but, you know, looking back on it, I maybe if I had read your, your recent book, I, I would have made a different decision. But that, that was what influenced... Uh, influenced my thinking at the time, and, you know, rightly or wrongly, you, you, know, you know, you end up where you end up. Now, I remember um, uh, at the time, you know, obviously before the, the decision to go to law school, I think you interned for, did you intern for 95.9 The Fox? I did. And is that when you realized that people in radio make, uh, you know, next to nothing every year? Yeah, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, you and I were very lucky, as you know, having parents who kind of let you pursue whatever you wanted. Uh, and so I, I never felt like I was being pushed in any particular direction by by mom or dad or anybody else, really. It was more of an internal kind of uh, pressure. Um, but one of the things that I was concerned about was making sure that I, I gave, uh, you know, mom and dad a return on their investment. I didn't squander my education working for, you know, cents on the dollar after graduation, and when I was interning at 95.9 The Fox, I realized that, you know, the most senior person that I met there uh, was probably like an assistant program director or something, uh, was making uh, less than, uh, this may be somewhat of an exaggeration, but, but less than a year of tuition at, at school. So, uh, you know, when I saw that, I think, well, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's more lucrative ways to uh, ent enter the workforce than that. When, I, when you mentioned uh, making sure mom and dad got a return on their investment, I thought you were going to say that you started paying back the money that they spent on tuition, but I, I don't think you did. <laughs> no, no, but uh, I, I didn't. But, but it was that, I guess my mindset was I didn't want to, you know, when they make that investment in you, I didn't want them to uh, feel like I was squandering my education on 
pursuits that, that were not going to provide a reasonable return for me personally in terms of my income. So, uh, and again, never got any pressure from them, ne was never dissuaded by them to pursue one path or the other, but it was just sort of my sensibilities. And uh, they took over, and, and I probably, when I, when I was in uh, uh, France studying abroad junior year, I decided that when I came back from Europe, um, I, I needed to uh, kind of figure out the future. And uh, my decision basically was made to uh, start studying for the LSAT and apply to law school. So that's what Surely I you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. <laughs> um, now, in, in, uh, you, you went to Paris. I did. To, uh, to paraphrase a, uh, or, or a quote a Jimmy Buffett song. Um, what was that experience like for you? I mean, it, up until that point in time, you, you know, aside from going to college, you never really were kind of apart from the family for, for all, that, all that very long. Right. Um, certainly not in a foreign country. And, and uh, we know that you are book smart, not necessarily street smart. So <laughs> what, was, uh, what was the Paris experience like for you? So just take one step back from answering that question. A couple things going on, I guess, at that time. I, I found myself wanting to um, break out a little bit, um, not, a, not in a rebellious sort of way, but really put myself in a position where I was in an unfamiliar environment. You know, it felt very cloistered, very safe, and there are a lot of positive aspects to that, you know, going to a Catholic high school and Catholic everything at, up till that point, and, um, you know, living in relative proximity to family and so forth. And, you know, college was pretty much an extension of that. So I felt like I needed to break out a little bit for my own personal growth and, and stretch myself and go a little bit beyond my comfort zone. So that was one of the reasons to go to France. The other reason was I was studying French as a minor in college, and I figured it was a good way to kind of voice, bolster that uh, credential. So that was the reason to, uh, to go to Europe. And um, I was also feeling a little, I won't say disillusioned, but I, I was feeling a little bit stale in, uh, in college at that time. I, you know, I had a good group of friends. I was doing well academically, but I felt like I needed to, um, uh, to just break out a little bit, as I, as I keep repeating myself. But that, that was the, the thought process, and that, that's what led me to go to Europe in January of 1995. What led you to get the earring, James? <laughs> well, I, again, I think it was just another extrapolation of that uh, sensibility at the time where I just felt like I wanted to uh, break out a little bit. And in, in fairness, I mean, that came, that particular decision lasted for a couple of years, but by the time I was a senior and went back to school uh, my senior year, and I had made decisions about where I was headed with my future, uh, the earring promptly came out and, and I was ready to hit the ground running and finish strong. Now, when did the thought come into your mind? Like, what, what planted the seed to investigate the Jaguar? Um, so, I, when I was in law school, um, it's interesting, you know. I, I'm sorry, that was a, uh, odd, uh, an odd thing to happen there. <laughs> so, I, uh, I, I started in law school, let's see, in September of 1996, I guess it was. 
yeah. And um, was very fortunate to, to do quite well academically in, in law school. And again, never had mom or dad push me in one direction or the other, but um, I remember one of the uh, one of the weeks that they had was a kind of a week where the large law firms and government agencies in the city would come and, and interview students on campus. And uh, this was back in the boom boom days of the 90s when there was a hiring spree and, and people could not get their hands on enough talent. They were hiring anybody and everybody they can get their hands on. And I had a very good grade point average in, in law school. I was highly ranked in my class. Um, I was selected for law review. And you know, I think because of those things, I sort of had my pick of the litter. So it, it came down to a decision of what, what it was that I wanted to, to pursue and, and the kind of career that I wanted to have. And um, the Army was interviewing as part of that week-long process with other law firms. And I signed up for an interview. And I went in and had a conversation with the uh, field screening officer who was there interviewing candidates. And she was interviewing for active duty full-time positions with the Army JAG Corps. And had a great interview with her and a great meeting and was invited to submit an application. So from the time you had that initial meeting to the time you earned your commission, how, how many years passed? <laughs> well, let's see. I, I earned my commission in 2013, and the interview with the recruiter would have been in 1998. So you're better at math than I am, but that's, that's quite a few years. It's, uh, you, were, you were not uh, a man in your 20s at the time when you received your commission. You were not even in your mid-30s. You were at kind of the tail end. Yes. Of, of your 30s, um, how did you eventually get in? Because I know that you had a, a number of hurdles to kind of clear uh, along the way. So tell me, um, how did you get in? Yeah, so when, when I was uh, interviewing with the, with the Army back in 1998, uh, there was a different uh, time period. I mean, it was before uh, September 11th, 2001, obviously. And, um, you know, the, the recruiting standards were, were very high. They still are. I don't mean to, to say that they're not. They are. But I had had some medical issues, uh, you know, from early childhood that uh, turned out to be disqualifying conditions um, and, and really prevented me from continuing to pursue a career with the JAG Corps or at least start my legal career with the JAG Corps back in 1999 when I graduated law school. You're referring to, to asthma? Yes, I, I had had a childhood asthma. Um, I had had, believe it or not, some early surgery uh, when I was an infant that, uh, that was creating some consternation with the medical authorities, uh, the Army Surgeon General. Uh, but asthma was certainly the primary uh, obstacle at that time. And, um, you know, life happens, um, you move on, you uh, kind of pick yourself up and say, okay, I guess I'm not going to be able to pursue that. And I started a career in private practice um, with, a, with a law firm in Connecticut. But I never, you know, I, I never really stopped uh, having the desire to earn 
my commission and and serve my country. And so I always continued to to look at it and monitor what was happening. Obviously, after the war broke out in Afghanistan after 9/11, and then subsequently in Iraq, um, you know things changed. There was a, a push to get as many people on board as as uh, was possible. But throughout that period of time, um, in the wake of Afghanistan and Iraq, the medical standards hadn't changed. They, they continued to disqualify me um, from service. And that ultimately changed. And it changed, um, I want to say, in late 2012 when I became aware of it. And the, um, the DOD had published new guidelines for accession into the armed services. and. Um, they basically said that if you had a otherwise disqualifying condition but had not taken any medication and had not been treated for that condition for five continuous years and you were able to pass a military physical, uh, then you would be considered for service. You would not be, per se, medically disqualified. And so when I learned that, I um, obviously had to go through the process and my application was uh, submitted electronically, which was different than 1998 for sure, and was accepted conditionally fairly quickly um, in the process, even as a 30, 38, 39-year-old guy. But it was subject to medical clearance. And so it took about you know, eight or nine months after the initial acceptance to finally get medically cleared. I had to go to all sorts of strange places to take tests to prove that I, I had the, the stamina, the medical, the respiratory capacity and all this kind of stuff and, and got it done. But it was a, you know, it was a process. But so the, the narrative I'm hearing is, you know, it's something you started to explore, you know, 15 years ago. Yes. Something that, you know, you had a roadblock in your way, you know, your, your personal health history. Um, but you didn't give up on that. You kind of kept at it. And, you know, you never kind of gave up on that dream. So, I mean, to me, it just shows that, you know, you know you've got some grit. You know, you've got some persistence. And those are two qualities that are, you know, just incredibly important to make it anywhere these days. You know, whether you're trying to get to the Army, whether you're trying to, you know, get into college or, or get a job. Um, and those are some characteristics that might be lacking in, in this current generation of kids that, that you see? Oh, I, th I think it is. Um, I think there is a, I mean, this may be part of a, a broader conversation, but I think that there is a, um, uh, how do you say it? Uh, there's something missing, I think, um, in, in the current generation that I see, in the, the millennials and the whoever comes after the millennials. I don't know if we've reached that point in the, the cycle yet, but the, the, the current generation is not quite the same. They're missing something. And uh, I actually see it in, um, to, to some extent in my own kids, not, not in a negative way, but it's, it's different. Um, it's, it's different. The, the feeling is different. The sensibility is different. I think there's a lot of reasons for it, but I think there is something missing. Um, the, the other part that I'll say um, in, in what you just uh, explained, and thank you for uh, categorizing it that way. Um, you do have to have the grit. You do have to have the determination. You do have to have the single-mindedness. You do have to have a healthy dose of stubbornness. 
Um, but there Which is, you have no, no lack of. I, I mean, do, I do not. I do not. Um, so, so those are all very, very important ingredients. But the recipe would not be complete if you didn't have one other very important ingredient. And here's the tie-in. Uh, the important ingredient is what is described, I think, very well in the title of your current book. Because if you don't have that feeling, if you're not able to um, deal with criticism and negativity and people judging you or people thinking that you're, you're crazy and you're, you're foolish and what are you doing, if you can't look beyond that, um, then you're not, you're not going to accomplish what you want to accomplish. It's just not going to happen. So you, um, you, know, you, you refer to this, uh, this masterpiece, um, this... Uh, this, uh, how, how would you call it, this collection of words, um, <laughs> which is known as all the Fs I cannot give. Yeah, are we subject to uh, restrictions on our language? We like to keep it clean here okay. on the Plates of Family show. Uh, right. Uh, the title, obviously the title, uh, certainly eye-catching, um, certainly offensive to some. Completely understand that. Um, the goal is to, uh, you know, there's a... A self-help book on the best seller list right now on the shelves at Barnes and Noble wherever I've you go. Seen it, yeah. It's called uh, "The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F." Yes. Um, of course, they spell out the word. Um, mine is uh, some somewhat hidden on the cover of the book uh, by a gummy bear, which is another story, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a key plot plot event in in the novel. But um, you know, I, I started writing that because I realized that one of my um, one of my faults, you know, and we all have them, but one of my own sort of personality shortcomings, uh, and many people have told me this over the years, um, is that I, I, I care too much, which sounds funny. Like, how can one possibly care too much? But, you know, it, it, it does become a hindrance because you, if, if you care too much about everything, you know, you're going to be spread way too thin. So you have to learn to care a little bit less about certain things, not about everything, not about the important things. But if you, you know, care too much about X, Y, and Z, you're just going to spread yourself way too thin. So I started writing this book featuring this character who just cares way too much about everything. He's so conscious about everything going on in his life. And he doesn't really realize that he's being screwed over by his employer He's being screwed over by uh, his spouse, who uh, doesn't really love him, um, and he just he just gives too many Fs, right? And he comes across this other character who is his complete opposite, and she really just points it out. She flat out says to him, you know what's wrong with you? You give too many Fs, and you have to stop giving so many Fs. And right. that's a key kind of uh, uh, insight that he comes to, and then the book kind of kind of goes from there. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you have to you have to learn what to give an F about and what not to give an F about. And that's that's a that's a journey in and of itself. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And and unfortunately, um, I think it, take take the current generation that we were talking about and some of the challenges and the problems that they have and I said that there was something missing. Um, they they are constantly bombarded with social media, it's almost like they never leave their peer circle. It just follows them around wherever they go. 
and they, they feel self-conscious almost 24 hours a day. You know, if they're not posting enough on social media, people are going to say, why aren't you posting on social media? Where are you? If they're posting pictures nobody likes, then they feel bad because they, nobody liked the pictures. Yeah, it's, it's, an immediate, it's an immediate thing. Like, they want, and I see it with, with, with my kids, too. It's, they want an immediate gratification. Yeah. I just posted this. How many likes did I get? Yeah. Can you like this? Can you log on and like this? How, how long is my streak going with this person? Yeah. It's almost like they give too many Fs about this stuff. Oh, they, <laughs> you know, they, this they, is stuff that is not necessarily healthy uh, either. They do. And I, you know, if I could give them one gift... Honestly, if I if I could give both of my kids a gift, and it's it's hard because they're going through what they're going through, and and they're feeling the pressures of, of the social circles that they find themselves, uh, you know, confronting. And I and I get it. And I I'm not you know a 14 year old kid, uh, obviously. Although some would would argue differently. Mentally, but, sometimes. Right. right. Um, but. Uh, so, so I understand that, and I'm I'm 42, uh, going on 43, and, and I, I have a different perspective. But if I could give them one gift, it would be, you know, look, be responsible, focus on, you know, being good, good person, responsible person, help others, do well in school. All of those things are great. Um, the one golden nugget is just not to give an F. If you can give an F just a little bit less or a lot less than you are, man, does that open up a lot of opportunities for you? Because uh, then you're not you're not constrained. You know, you're not you don't feel self conscious all the time. You don't have the pit in your stomach. You're focused on becoming the person that you want to become and not allowing other people to try and shape and mold you in the way that you think they want you to be. And I, boy, if, if I could give them that, that would be the secret sauce. So one of the things I, I do want to ask you about, and then uh, we, we might take some calls, I don't know. Um, but, <laughs> you know, some people who, who might be listening, you know, the, the four or five people, including mom and dad, who might be listening to this, they may want to know what does a JAG do? What does a what does an army lawyer do? Mm-hmm. So can you summarize or or just kind of give me an overview of maybe a situation in which you've helped somebody in the military uh, accomplish something through the legal system? Sure. Well, let me take the first question uh, you asked first, which is what, what do we do? So it, it's a little bit different on on the reserve side versus the active side, which we can talk about if you want to get into those weeds. But the judge advocate in general is, uh, is a generalist. Uh, he or she will serve in various different legal capacities throughout the course of their, uh, their career. So one of the things that we do, for example, one of the core competencies is military justice. And military justice means that you are representing soldiers and defending them in courts martial, for example, uh, which is something a lot of people are familiar with from you know, Hollywood and things like that. Or you're on the government side and you're actually prosecuting those cases. And you know, those are criminal cases. Uh, you know, the UCMJ contains all of the offenses that you would see in a civilian criminal code, uh, plus some very specific military specific, I should say, uh, offenses that, that someone could be charged with. And so uh, that's one of the pillars of, of what we do. We also do, um, you know, legal assistance, and that's anything from helping a soldier who's being uh, evicted from their apartment 
to uh, helping somebody out in a domestic uh, issue or child custody issue, uh, all of those things would fall under the broad category of, of legal assistance. Um, then there are administrative law positions where you're actually dealing with Army regulations and you're trying to explain to the commander or whoever it is that you're responsive to on the installation that you're working on, um, you know, what, what the Army regulations say about, you know, having, uh, ha having a outside vendor come on to post and advertise their wares, advertise their services. Is that legal? Is that consistent with the regulations, for example? Um, and then, you know, there are, there are other uh, disciplines as well uh, within that, but those are three of the, the major ones. And, and I've done, you know, some version of, of all of those um, thus far in my career. Uh, as far as, uh, you know, an event or a case that, that stands out to me, um, I mean, one example is I represented a non-commissioned officer who suffered a, uh, a hemorrhage in, in her brain, and she suffered that injury while she was on annual training orders and tried to get what's called a line of duty designation uh, ascribed to that incident. And basically what that means is that if you incur an illness in the line of duty, then the government will pay all of your legal bills, uh, pardon me, all your legal bills, all of your medical bills you know, associated with that condition. So that is a huge benefit for uh, a soldier if they're able to get a line of duty designation for a particular illness. And in that particular case, they were disputing the line of duty designation for her because they claimed it was a pre-existing condition. They claimed that she had had it her entire life. So we went through a very extensive process to appeal that determination. Uh, we had an affidavit from her doctor uh, supporting the notion that she had incurred this in the line of duty or it was aggravated from her service-specific activities. Uh, ultimately, that case is still pending. Um, there, there still is no uh, to my, my knowledge, final resolution on it, but we have at least kept the issue alive. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Uh, so it's, it's not just, you know, code reds. It's not just it's code not reds. It's not just Hollywood stuff. It is practical. No. Uh, no. People who are leading lives, you know, people who are, need help just like civilians. Sure. And, and I would say as a reservist, you're going to spend quite a lot of time doing that due to the uh, constraints of time. You know, you cannot get involved in a two or three month court martial as a reservist just because you know you're not you're not working th those number of days as a as a soldier generally as a reservist unless you're you're in a mobilized capacity but i have uh, just as another example represented the government in uh, in administrative separation action against an officer who believe it or not was a chaplain uh, who committed theft and stole money from the government and uh, we, we got him removed from the Army during an administrative separation uh, board that we were uh, working on. So, um, you know, it, it's a broad category from one day to the next. You, you never know exactly what's going to come across your desk, but you try to do it and manage it and, and get it done for the client. Is it, is it more rewarding to, to work on stuff like that than it is to work on, um, you know, more civilian-type stuff? Or Well, I, I mean, I... I, I try and view everything as, um, as trying to do what's right for the client. If my client happens to be, you know, 
we're going to go to grade A today, right? So if my client happens to be the Singeri family and we're trying to negotiate uh, a deal for them to lease space in one of their shopping centers to a, a tenant, um, I'm going to work as hard as I can for Rocky and, and the rest of the family to get the best result possible for them uh, as, their, as their lawyer. And I, I actually don't treat my Army clients any different. And I think that's, that's something that, that is, uh, I won't say unique, but, you know, I, I bill out at $560 an hour on the civilian side. When I represent a soldier as a reservist, they pay nothing for my time. But I, I try and give them the same level of service, the same level of professionalism and attention to their matter that I would give any of my, uh, my bill-paying clients on the civilian side. So that's how I try to look at it. I don't try to, uh, you know, put one over the other. I, I try to keep them as equal as possible. Now, as we, uh, we wrap up here, because we are a little tight on time, and yeah. we're not going to be able to get to the longest of callers that are, uh, that are waiting to talk to you, Jim, but um, if, if you had the opportunity to write a letter to yourself when you were younger, you know, pick, pick an age, you know, an age where maybe you felt perhaps a little bit more insecure than you feel right now, what's some of the advice you would give to your younger self? Um, I if my younger self could see uh, the 40-something version, uh, he wouldn't worry as much. He wouldn't, um, he wouldn't worry about getting married so young. He wouldn't worry about, you know, not having the right kind of job at the right time. Um, you know, he, he, would, he wouldn't worry about a lot of things that seem to be uh, such stressors and so... Uh, necessary to get done at that particular phase, he would relax a lot more and he would have confidence and he would be able to work on the things that he uh, thinks were important to develop himself as a person. I, I think that, uh, and, and it wouldn't have been stressed out. I mean, my God, if I, if I had the ability to morph back into a 25-year-old version of myself, knowing what I know now, you know, that would be fantastic. But that, that's the fantasy. So you can't do that. So what you do try and do is make sure that you're not wasting time now. And you're not wasting time worrying, wringing your hands, worrying about what everyone else is thinking. And I'm not saying that you don't respect, you know, the opinions of, of your family and friends. You absolutely have to and you should. Um, but you don't worry about, uh, you know, you don't, you're not as self-conscious, put it that way. So that, that would have been the thing to do for the 25-year-old, but since I can't do that for the 25-year-old, I want to do it for the 43-year-old and the 45-year-old and the 50-year-old version. So that's what I'll be committed to doing in the future. So if, if I were to, to just paraphrase, you have to give fewer Fs. Got to give fewer Fs, man. That is the secret sauce, Michael. I'm <laughs> telling you, that is the key. And uh, I think, uh, I dare I say that that should be required uh, reading. Well, so uh, we'll end it on that note. And uh, since you set me up for the plug, I will, uh, I will plug uh, my own book. And I can do it because this is my show. Absolutely. You can uh, go on to Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or wherever books are sold. Search for the name Michael Carlin. That's C-A-R-L-O-N. All of the books are up there. All five of the books are up there. Uh, latest, of course, is All the Fs I Cannot Give. It is a laugh-out-loud comedy. I think you're going to enjoy it. And, uh, Jim, I enjoyed the time we spent together. Terrific. 
And uh, here's, here's having a good U2 concert tonight. Uh, let's do it. Let's do it right. All right. Uh, for uh, Jim Carlin, this is Mike Carlin saying, Achtung, baby! Well, that was my interview with Jim. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you have any comments, you can uh, please send them to me, Mike at UncorkingAStory.com. Incidentally, I will let you know, we had a fantastic time at the U2 concert on Wednesday night. It was epic. It was a life-changing experience. It certainly changed my heart in many ways. And uh, I'm only now starting to feel better from it, and it's Saturday morning. So a uh, good time was had by all. Please, uh, thank you for listening. Uh, listen again. And that's it. I'm rambling, so I know it's time to hit the stop button.